There's an old saying which goes, if you buy cheap, you buy twice. On this episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast, we find out why that might not always have to be the case. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Alasa. How are you doing today, Lassa? I'm actually doing pretty good. Um, recently, I've gotten a new job again, uh, a feature movie for Netflix. So I've been kind of busy doing that, and it's been uh, brilliant, actually. That's cool. So, um, yeah. What kind of movie is it? <laughs> uh, it's a monster movie, actually. Sounds great. Is it in Norwegian? Uh, yeah, it will be Norwegian, actually, but it's Netflix original. Cool. I hope that we get to watch it on Netflix here, maybe with subtitles. It sounds great. Most likely. I mean, but shooting on great locations through the entirety of South southern Norway, so it's really great. That's cool. It's kind of uh, appropriate for the time of year as we are heading into the autumn, I guess. Yeah, uh, it won't be feature till like 2022 sometime though i don't know exactly when but you get to be on these cool locations shooting a monster movie yeah that's excellent (laughs) so today for this episode we have a special guest his name is paul um he has been a member of my reenactment unit since we started and i reenacted with him also before that he's got a lot of reenactment experience and uh pleased to have him on the podcast so welcome paul thanks for the introduction chris why don't you go ahead and uh, kind of tell us about how you got interested in world war ii and how you got started in world war ii reenacting sure so a little bit of background on me is i really got interested in the hobby mostly due to my grandfathers my paternal grandfather was actually a soldier in the u.s army in world war ii and he really sparked that interest as as a young child my other grandfather actually used to take me to a vehicle show in webster massachusetts like a world war ii military vehicle show and i remember as a young child actually running into three pgd you know it was like a 12 13 year old and saying like man this hobby's really cool like I'm, i could really get into this fast forward a couple of years and at that point um I decided to join the YD, like a, a GI unit, and I was doing that when I was 17, and that's, you know, oh my god, like 14 years ago? So after that, I then decided to opt in to be an extra in a film called Shutter Island, and that is really when I decided to start doing German. Like yourself, um, another associate of ours, Mark, was there, and it really prompted me to try something new, and I've been essentially reenacting with Chris, like obviously yourself for the past, uh, man, that's 2008, 13 years. Paul, you and Lassa met when Lassa came to America and did that uh, reenactment a few years ago too. The very last gap. Yeah, the very last uh, <laughs> very last of the great Fort Indian Town Gap events. The legendary event. Which I'm glad that you got to go to, Lassa, you know, um, especially as it moves mm, further same. away in time, you know, it was just such a cool moment and... Uh, you know, a lot of great connections were made at that event for sure. Absolutely, and as I, um, people in my unit joke about that, the long-lasting gap event lasted till I 
joined. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was that, that stuff that you brought to drink created all the problems. <laughs> yeah. Created a few problems, though, but yeah, it was fun. So what we're going to talk about today is how to take inferior quality or inexpensive reproductions and improve them and make them usable. I think that's um I think it's a really cool topic. It's something that I personally am really interested in. I think it's part of the skill the skill set that I value in reenacting is being able to take something that is maybe not doesn't look convincing, it doesn't look correct, and be able sort of as a craft to modify that and to make it maybe as good or better than other reproductions. I mean, in some cases, there might not be other reproductions. They're, the only available reproductions might have some flaw or issue. This is a problem that we are faced with from time to time. So uh, being able to to upgrade these kind of things, I think, is a really useful skill. I agree wholeheartedly. And sometimes it can be done as simply as just adding a stamp or adding some new stitching, changing the insignia, changing buttons. A lot of the time I personally feel that um, as long as the base object has good material and is built robustly, a lot of times it can be vastly improved. It's just a, I don't want to say a minimal amount of effort, but enough to where you can get it done in a day. Like it's not, you know, week long project type of thing. Over the years, I've shown online a lot of uh, stuff that you have worked on for me, Paul. Uh, for example, my bayonet, my gas mask canister, a helmet of mine. These are all things that uh, you took and made them look uh, realistic. Um, you know, I think it's kind of a, a specialty of yours and something that you have a lot of. Um, experience with. So I'm glad that you kind of are willing to share some of your techniques. I guess to start off with, like, what kind of items really are are we talking about here? What kind of kit items lend themselves to these kind of techniques? I would say definitely bayonets, as you mentioned. Reproduction bayonets, that's a, that's a big one. I personally try and use as little original kit as I possibly can. At this point, I've whittled it down to just my rifle being the only original thing I still use. Bayonets, um, bread bags is another one that I know you can modify with relative ease as long as the base isn't that god-awful. Moving beyond that, some uniform components, taking a Sturm tunic, which I know like is pretty good at, the, at its base, but adding small details like the little... Um, reinforcement bars at the collar or you know switching the buttons on the trousers to have that x stitching versus the machine one, machine done one other things that i've seen to improve an inferior product would actually be like chinese canteens surprisingly i've seen some very good reproductions come out these days replacing the felt cover and the you know some of the leather components, but retaining the use of the reproduction canteen itself. By this, I mean the actual aluminum flask allows you to have an object that you can beat up, bang up, and destroy. As opposed to, <laughs> I recently destroyed an FWBN forty original canteen, and I don't want to say I was distraught, but I really wasn't happy when that happened. So it allows you to just play around with things. Also. Distressing aging can lend itself to an object that just looks a little bit more convincing. So, I mean, bayonets are probably the biggest and easiest one that I could start with because that process is very basic to get it improved. 
Lasse, in your group, do you guys mostly use um, original bayonets? I know the availability of these things is is probably different in Norway. We try to use as little original as possible, but um, bayonets, like, there's many of them still around here. But, of course, we're starting to feel that they're getting a little more scarce than they used to be a few years back. Um, so I think most of the unit guys have um, have uh, reproductions, but I do know that several do rock uh, original bayonets, too. There have been a few variations or a few production runs of original bayonets over the years. I remember when they first came out, um, they were pretty lousy, but um, the current production runs, I think, are, are really good. Um, is that is that your experience too, Paul? Oh, yeah, 100%. About 10 years ago, if you were going to purchase a reproduction bayonet, the chances of it even fitting onto your um, bayonet lug on your K98 were slim to none, and it would require a lot of you know, fitting in order just to get it to work. These days, all of the major retailers sell a decent bayonet, but a lot of the times it just doesn't look convincing out of the box. And by that, even though it's cheap, you know, oftentimes less than $50, you do need to put in some work and some effort just to make it look like a field use piece. And by that, I mean, you know, something as simple as just taking your bayonet out of the scabbard and stabbing the dirt with it getting some of that bluing rubbed off, um, putting some nicks and dings into the scabbard, which will develop over time and use. But if the rest of your impression looks brand, you know, it's, it looks field-worn and used because you've been using an original bayonet for the past, you know, three, four years, and you decide to move towards a uh, reproduction, you might want to make it match your kit. And granted, yes, I do understand that new items were issued. Personally, I like to have my kit have the appearance of, yes, I've been wearing these objects for the past five, six, seven months, what have you, as opposed to having something bright and glaringly new. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty then for a bayonet specifically. You mentioned, uh, you know, abrading some of the bluing off, maybe stabbing it into the ground to change the appearance of the blade, uh, you know, putting some, like, nicks into the scabbard. What, what do you do with these things? How do you put those dents in the scabbard? Or, like, what's your process? You know, kind of take us from start to finish on a, on a bayonet that you would do. So in the past, a lot of bayonets came with a um, black-painted scabbard, or the bluing is just... It's a, a, uh, it's a hot dip blue. It's very dark, and it just doesn't look like any of my originals that I've handled. So usually what I'll do is I will start by striking it with a Brillo pad and trying to get a decent amount of the bluing or the, the modern phosphate coating or paint off as much as I possibly can. From there, I usually use a small ball-peen hammer, just give it a few light taps to put those dings that you can very often see in them. Uh, the fl- I don't want to say the flat edges, but you know the, the sides of the scabbard. I'll whack against either a cinder block or a brick, just add a couple of dings. And then, honestly... I just leave it outside and let it get a little rusty. And I know the Spieß would really not like seeing a rusty bayonet scabbard. But from that point, you can take a little 4 aught steel wool and just gently card off any of that rust. And it makes a very convincing appearance for something that has been used by a soldier in the field. On the actual blade itself, what I will do is, just as I said, stab the dirt with it, rub the blade with some steel wool or a uh, Brillo or scotch Bright, just to add some... I, I, putting things into the white is the term I would use on the high areas on the actual bayonet, areas that would wear quickly. 
And then from there, there's a little blast shield. I actually, I can't remember the actual name of it in German, but if you look at a K98 bayonet, it will have a little metal protector on the grip area near the top. And the reason why that was introduced was to prevent um, essentially burn off from the powder of a rifle being fired from damaging the grips. Oftentimes you see this little piece of metal is quite damaged. And so literally I will just whack a couple of Zelt stakes into place and bam, it improves the, the look of that bayonet tenfold. It's no longer something that looks like a reproduction that was rolled off the assembly line last week and looks like something that was used by an actual soldier in the field. Lassa, I know in the past we have talked about the, uh, the canteens, reproduction canteens that are available. Um, you know, this is kind of to the theme of like inexpensive reproduction stuff, right? The, uh, you can buy from China reproduction canteens that are really inexpensive compared to what you might pay for a refurbished original canteen or um, really more than what you might pay to a U.S. or European-based reseller for a Chinese-made canteen. Uh, I know, like Lassus, you you must use those canteens. Some of your guys must use those Chinese reproduction canteens. Yeah, most of our guys use the... uh various uh, Chinese uh, canteens, specifically like Hiki Shop. Um, before their felt covers were really good and their leather work was mm, okay, but I think the latest run of Hiki bottles, I've seen one a few months ago, I think the leather work has kind of degraded there, so that needs replacing at least, but yeah. Uh, sure. Most of our guys use that. That's exactly what I've seen as well. Um, Paul, what is? I know you're really into canteens, Paul. Like, What's your What's your process? How do you evaluate a canteen? How do you upgrade a, a cheap canteen? So I primarily evaluate it on the actual flask and cap. And the reason why I say cap is some of the cheaper, the cheapest of the Chinese reproduction canteens will have a, like a die-cast zinc cap. The slightly more expensive, and by that I mean like $5 more expensive canteens are usually marked HRE38 and have a machined aluminum cap similar to an original. So that is where I base my standard on the actual thing. It's like the flask is the most, it's the core element. Then from there, I move over to the cover. And covers are very hard to find. I mean, I've dealt with replic ones. I've dealt with some mystery ones from various Ukrainian sellers. Really, nobody has perfected the German canteen cover, and the best thing you can get is obviously like a post-war Czech one. However, I have noticed that the Hiki felt covers are actually quite decent, but the leather's bad. So with that, you can take a, a joke shop canteen at its core. You have a solid uh, flask and cap. You, you drive out the cap, attach that to like a better-made strap, and so if you just swap out the leather, really, and change out the leather on the um, actual felt cover itself, you've now taken something that had rubbery, garbage leather, and you have a brand new actual canteen flask that'll hold up to years of use. And this is also very similar when you look at some bread bags sometimes. Um, Schuster's bread bags are, they look great in the pictures. I think I sold you one of mine. I can't remember who I sold it to. Maybe uh, Ben T. But no, I did get it from you. Yeah. But I had to replace the leather on that because it was fully dyed black on both sides, rubbery, garbage leather, 
And I think people, I think there's a guy on YouTube who didn't like the D rings, but all I had to do was take out the stitching, replace it as opposed to using polyester stitching, using like actual linen and just spray paint the D rings. And it really improved the look for about, I don't know, an hour and a half of my time versus having those like gross chrome plated, uh, D-rings, if you will. And I, I actually have a, a technique to make certain metal objects really change color. And I think you've done this in the past. I mean, you familiar with the blowtorch trick, Chris? Yes, I do. So that's another thing that I have done oftentimes when you do have like subpar um, like D-rings or hooks, and they have to be steel. This is never an aluminum like thing to do, but you can always take like a I really like those chrome plated rivets, chrome plated buckles, hooks, what have you. And I just blast them with a blowtorch until they're red hot. And then I let them air cool. And it's sort of like a heat bluing. And I haven't noticed any negative changes to the structural integrity of the metal. And in some cases, just doing that alone, like once you've removed the metal object, can vastly improve the look of a reproduction. I had a real hard time finding usable roller buckles for my tornister. Um, one of my tornister packs came with some pretty low-grade black-painted hardware. It was an earlier generation of a reproduction. I wanted to upgrade the roller buckles to a more correct style. Um, I couldn't find anybody with steel roller buckles in the right size that didn't have bright nickel plating. Um, I wound up getting some nickel-plated ones for a very cheap price, and I heated them up with a blowtorch, and I couldn't believe how cool they looked after they cooled down. Uh, whether I burned off the nickel plating or it just changed the appearance of the nickel plating, I don't know, but um, it definitely looked usable, looked passable as an original thing after doing the, the blowtorch technique. Awesome. That's actually interesting. Yeah, I've seen a lot of success with that. Use of the blowtorch being one uh, possible technique for you know changing the appearance of a metal item. Uh, Paul, you mentioned redoing the leather on a canteen cover. That requires sewing, or like a bread bag requires sewing. Years ago, the idea of stitching leather parts seemed like some kind of technical skill that was was more challenging than I was able to... Um, to master. In more recent years, I have learned how to sew leather, and it's an awesome skill that I'm able to use a lot on my kit. How did you learn to do leather sewing, Paul? So it all starts with my very first rifle, my uh, first K98. When I got it, and this actually is like a two-part story almost, when I got it, I had one of those like joke um, buffalo urine tanned, you know, orange uh, slings on it and the buckle on it was just this real garbage black painted monstrosity and you know i was 18 at the time so one day i said okay i'm gonna swap out this buckle for one i have on this roached israeli sling because i liked the appearance of the buckle on the israeli sling i felt it looked more realistic but i wanted to keep the leather so i ended up you know unstitching it i went on youtube i looked up how to sew leather and i found the saddle stitch i went to michael's i bought some waxed linen thread and two leather needles and i just sat in front of the tv as 18 year old myself and just learned how to do it right then and there but this also brings in another aspect of remember how i said the 
sling leather itself looked quite awful. Another technique I have used to turn, like, I don't say low quality, but low authenticity objects into better looking ones is another trick that I call the acetone trick. Um, Deglazing and re-dyeing leather can oftentimes turn something that is laughable when you get it out of the box into something that's a lot more convincing with about 15 minutes of work and a few dollars. What is deglazing? What is your uh, approach to that? So there are commercial products to deglaze leather, and oftentimes I do recommend people do deglaze their boots with a commercial product before they dye them. Deglazing essentially removes any of the residual, I don't say oils, but deposits on the surface of the leather before you dye it, and it allows the dye to take a deeper uh, like bite into the leather. Deglazing in the sense of taking poor reproductions and turning in them into something better is really removing that like painted-on leather finish that you see oftentimes on cheaper reproductions, namely uh, rifle slings. So I usually use acetone and rubbing alcohol, like a, a higher strength rubbing alcohol, a 90% or greater. And yes, this will dry out the leather, but it will strike off either that gross orange painted finish you see on cheaper quote, brown Wehrmacht reproductions, and from there you're left with like a natural piece of leather. And all it takes is rubbing in some either uh, Hubert's, that's my preferred boot grease, or Cocho line, or Snow Seal, any leather treatment will darken it to that nice, rich, natural-looking dark brown leather. So you can take an inferior object and literally just wipe it down with a paper towel and acetone to really free up that surface and then utilize the standard like boot treatment stuff that we all have to make it look a lot more authentic. Lassa, have uh, have any of your guys in you know recent months or years come to you with um, reproduction kit that was so poorly made that you told them that they just they couldn't use it? Not really. I think that's mainly because we um, uh, try to guide our members as close as possible when they purchase kit so no one has really showed up with uh, anything uh, horrendous i'm trying to think about like horrendous stuff that is still available i know that there are some really low tier items that you can still get on ebay you can get uh, bread bags that are shaped like a football or are Mm -hmm. made out of fantasy fabrics you can get m43 caps that you know look like they're patterned off of something in a cartoon i think by and large the what the major vendors sell has really improved in some ways since the earlier days of the mass availability of of chinese made reproductions where a lot of the stuff was you know first generation and you know not very good um but even like uh still i think the the lower tier reproductions or the more inexpensive reproductions, um, they still really lend themselves to improvement with these techniques that Paul is talking about. I actually think like the biggest uh, minefield I can think of when it comes to horrendous kit is actually uh, the Herr uh, Litzen, uh, the um, the uh, so-called late war generic Litzen. Uh, you have the two colored ones that are wrong, and many still sell those. Yep. And that is a minefield we um, always try to emphasize, but people still get it wrong. But, I mean, um, it's just a Litzen, though, so it's not... Like, I mean, uh, 
that would be the one thing that I uh, that people keep coming with, uh, keep coming showing up to events with, that I have to uh, say like this doesn't work. Well, I've actually had some experience in modifying those to make them look a little bit better, and I'm actually looking at a set on a Feldblusa, a Sturmfeldblusa. I sewed these on myself for a friend of mine, and they were the only available reproductions that I could get within a short time frame. My friend was flying in from across the country to attend an event, and he needed new insignia on his on his uh, blouse. So I couldn't wait to get a pair from McFarthing Rolls over in, you know, uh, where are they, in the Netherlands, I think? Or I couldn't wait to get in a pair yeah. from Ukraine or Russia. I needed these in less than a week. So I ordered a pair, I believe, from Kelly's or at the front at the time. And I was able to significantly change the colorways of them through tea staining and grinding in dirt. And actually since then, they've really lost that two-toned appearance and have a really neat brown color that I've seen on a couple of original tunics in Chris's collection. So, I mean, sometimes when you are limited by certain vendors or a time frame, these techniques can really come in and like a pinch hitter almost. That's why I suggest looking into this stuff because, you know, not all of us have a year to wait to get, you know, the best equipment from uh, the Czech Republic or Slovakia, what have you. If we have an event next week and all you can get because your belt broke is a lower tier reproduction, maybe it makes sense to just deglaze it, grease it up as best as you possibly can and make it look real until your better reproductions can come in. Sure. So what kind of stuff do you kind of keep on hand in your toolkit, Paul? Um, I know you mentioned some leather cream, leather grease stuff. Um, you know, what kind of what kind of uh, leather dye do you like to use? What kind of materials do you like to have on hand for these projects? So I'll start with the leather aspect. With that, I use um, Feebing's oil-based leather dye in black, obviously, um, for my dye. For deglazing, on boots, I use a Feebing's product as well, but that's only for like when you're buying a brand new pair from like at the front and you need to dye them. For regular deglazing of the cheaper leathers of like, you know, those um, Indian or Pakistani made rifle slings, I usually just have a bottle of acetone, like a very large, you know, industrial can that you can get at Home Depot or whatever home goods store you would frequent. I also have a bottle of um, rubbing isopropyl rubbing alcohol. I believe mine's a 95 or 96% strength because I like to make sure I get all that paint off. For leather treatment, I, I defer almost always to Hubert's shoe grease. I find that one to just soak into the leather very well, and it doesn't leave it super tacky. If I really need to waterproof something, though, I'll stick to snow steel because that was my tried and true. I have used Cocho line in the past, but I find that it doesn't um, melt into the leather nearly as efficiently as some of the other brands I've found. But ultimately, they all give you the same result for stitching, repairing things, or really like changing out uh, like metal bits on a bread bag. Right? I keep just waxed linen thread two leather needles and a blowtorch as i said before to really just change the color and appearance of certain metal objects that are usually nickel plated or chromed what about like hardware and materials Mm -hmm. like where do you source leather for you know replacing straps on a canteen cover like what kinds of hardware do you actively seek out um, for these projects so when it comes to replacing the leather on a canteen 
cover, right? I've actually used the chin straps from Finnish M40 55 helmets, the, uh, the plain brown ones that come with the roller buckle. I'll, I'll, whenever I get a garbage item and I have to sacrifice certain aspects of it, I'll keep parts. And for instance, you know, bring up canteens again. The Chinese-made leather is rubbery. It's awful. But a lot of times the actual um, carabiner hook, the, the snap hook on the back, is a very good steel reproduction. So I'll you know, pull that off and I'll reuse it. I try and recycle as much leather as I possibly can from my own kit. So when things break, I keep it like a weird hoarder. But I've used old tornister straps that have... Um, reach the end of their lives per se so like if a part of it blows out but a decent amount of it is still workable i'll cut it down and reuse that for a uh, canteen cover alternatively for fabrics i really like to use other nations surplus from the cold war i found you know some czech surplus items you know early Bundeswehr, even american or soviet items can oftentimes lend very good canvas fabrics to repair or replace things in certain reproductions. Lassa, where you live, do they have like army surplus stores or do you have access to to surplus stuff like that that could be used as a donor material or, or anything like that? Yeah, we do. Um, you can buy uh, lots of like older stuff that could be uh, cannibalized for materials and stuff like that. That's cool. Yeah, I uh, I also, I've done that too to some extent. You know, I don't, I don't buy too much stuff that I uh, that I cut up and destroy, but I have, you know, bits and pieces of a lot of post-war surplus stuff, broken things uh, where you know you can take the leather or take take canvas or whatever for for these kinds of projects. That's exactly what I recommend is if you can find like let's say remember those old like um, early Bundeswehr Austrian rucksacks that were very common in the late nineties and early two thousands, the gray ones with those, if you can find one that's blown out, you know, if you can find things that are already have problems with them, I don't, it wouldn't make my heart skip a beat to utilize that for extra fabric to really change a reproduction. That's not the best into something that is among the best. And personally, I think there's a lot of joy that comes into taking an object that is subpar and turning it into something that is the envy of other reenactors or other people ask, where did you get that? Like what, that's an amazing reproduction. Where did you source that? And when you can look at them in the eye and say, I did this, you can then impart that knowledge on how to take an object and really improve it onto them and the rest of the reenactors out there. My goal really isn't to, um, you know, like hold back this information or data because then you're just a gatekeeper. It's all about, pushing it out there. I mean, and actually I think probably the biggest item that I've had the most success with in teaching people how to defarb what is considered like a kind of shoddy reproduction is stick grenades. So for, for people out there who maybe aren't aware of this, um, the, the quality of the existing, um, reproductions of the, the typical world war two German stick style hand grenade, they, they're not that good. Um, these are things that, you can't really make a reproduction stick grenade uh, at home. It's it's pieces of metal that are that are stamped with industrial machinery. There's tooling involved, um, so you're kind of stuck with the the mass produced 
existing reproductions of this item if you want to use that for part of your impression, which this is kind of an iconic aspect of the World War II German military. Um, so, you know, why don't, why don't you tell us, Paul, like what it is that you do to, to make these things look realistic? Because none of them are super realistic out no, of the box. From any vendor that you go to. And I, actually, I recommend the ones from IMA and at the front. They sell the exact same product. But all of them have this strange powder coat paint on the actual metal can. Um, they have incorrect markings. They have uh, the Reinhard Rinker mark with a 39 date. And a lot of it's just not very applicable for what the vast majority of us do. So a little bit of background on um, stick grenades. You can go to bergflak.com. That's B-E-R-G-F-L-A-K.com. They have a very good uh, section on the history of the M24 Stielhandgranate. And you can understand that in the reenacting hobby, the vast majority of grenades that we should be using, like just as props, really, would not have had that classic Vorgebrauch uh, Sprengkapsel einsetzen, the little text that you would see. And the paint is different, things such as that. The handles aren't covered in polyurethane. So really, you need to take this base object, no matter how much money you spend, no matter what vendor you go to, and fully revamp it to something that's a little bit more authentic. You need to fully strip the paint. You need to remove that polyurethane finish off of the um, handle itself, swap out the string inside for um, a thinner one as opposed to using this like thick, almost clothesline that comes with the standard reproduction. The, the little porcelain ball's fine, but then you got to take the actual metal can on the top and fill in the RR1939 stamp that's impressed in there with Bondo. You have to repaint it, add in correct stamps, which actually, Chris, I believe you have made, you've, you've made me my stamps for them in the past. So shameless plug for you here. I guess if anyone's interested in getting correct stamps to put on their hand grenades, go through you. But then you would have to add sealing paint around the bottom rim and really fully reassemble the whole thing. So this is actually a case of no matter where you go, you're going to get an inferior product. So you have to have the skills and the ability to repaint it using, I personally use Rust-Oleum Deep Forest Green for the can. I like the color it looks. And you need to be able to source proper stamps. And I generally use a permanent ink for my stamps. So mine are all stamped K for cult post-1942 along with the uh, filling data and the date of manufacture but it's very easy to do like this is something you can do in a weekend you could do you could knock out 10 and it's a low skill project as long as you know how to use a can of paint stripper and a can of spray paint and a couple of rubber stamps you can turn a object that is not authentic into something that is with about i'd say ten dollars worth of supplies and a couple hours of your time why do you fill in the, the RR marking on the can? The reason why I fill in the RR marking on the can is because um, it's, it's an early date and it's also in, like incorrect. So I, the RR on it, I believe, on all the reproductions is 1939. And they also have the RR facing in the incorrect way. I think it's like actual RR as opposed to a backwards R and then a regular R. So it's Farby inherently. And I would much rather have no markings and just use a little white stamped Waffenamt, which is very common for grenades produced after 1940, than have a Farby metal, like an impressed marking on the actual top of the can. I mean, ultimately, it's it's a very small thing. Um, what I have done 
restorations of these four friends in the past. If they don't care, I'll just leave the marking there. But that's just a very small thing that if you erase it, it vastly improves the authenticity of the object. Lassa, I know we've talked about this in the past where you basically don't hoard uh, reenactment gear. Uh, <laughs> most of the people that I know who do reenacting have like way too much gear. I know Paul has an insane hoard of gear. Uh, Lassa, are you still are you still not hoarding gear? Have you started hoarding this stuff yet? No. I mean, I probably started hoarding way back when, but I stopped. And I haven't hoarded for quite a while, actually. Well, that's an encouraging success story. You know, I kind of dare to dream that maybe someday I could control my own hoarding problem. Well, one day. We we have our own and entire episode on hoarding. What about the guys in your group, Lassa? Do they hoard stuff? Yes. Yes, very much so. Um, 20 different kits, 20 variations of each of those 20 kits. Paul is pretty deep in the hoarding. Uh, Paul, how many how many canteens do you have, or how many mess kits do you have at this point? Um, do you think? Looking at the massive pile, as I've started to uh, clean up my, I, I recently moved, so all of my reenactment kit is in this massive you know, mound in my basement. I can see right now, just out in the open, um, seven canteens, and I think I'm up to about thirteen or fourteen mess kits. I don't know why. Lassa, how does that make you feel? You only have one of each of those things, right? Yeah. I mean, aren't you worried that uh, they might break or you might lose them or you need a spare? You know, doesn't that concern you? Well, we had a period on the podcast where I couldn't find my canteen, uh, but uh, where I actually went to an event without a canteen. But uh, no, it's not really a concern because if, it, if I lose it or I... Uh, destroy something then i can buy a new but can one. you i know we already I, we always yeah. discuss this and exactly like, I, I do subscribe to the two is <laughs> two, one is none and two is one sort of uh theory but the only reason why i have so many mess kits is um i have been working on kits for some other unit members and i i like to think that i'm trying to build the foundation for loaner gear in the future i know it's kind of a, a feckless and inane absolutely insane thing to be doing actually but having like a um, equipment room in my lair as I'm building it right now would be kind of cool. Like a Ausrüstungskammer uh, or whatever it would be called. I, I don't know. I, I, my German slipped a lot in the past couple of years. Paul, I know it's not always a success when you take on one of these uh, gear improvement mm-hmm. projects. Sometimes it fails massively. Well, why don't why don't you get into that? You know what what constitutes a fail? You know what are what are kind of the the dark side or what are the bad things okay. that can happen? So you guys actually did share a um, reproduction improvement project that I did on this podcast that was an abysmal failure. I'm sure, and this was actually a gold standard high level reproduction where I took a Panther store M42 Feldbluse. And this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing. And it reduced itself into a um, a woolen (laughs) soup. Yeah, that was a a real nightmare. Another time, actually recently with one of these Chinese canteens that I was speaking of earlier, I was in an attempt to make the felt cover look better. I was trying to make it look more like the... uh, 
the woven sort of like jean cloth, late war ones. And I hit it with a blowtorch and I burned through it, destroyed it and had to throw that entire object <laughs> away. I've in attempts to age Gavin uniforms to uh, make the nap kind of go down and make them have a little bit more of a used appearance. Uh, the, polyester fabric that they use in place of actual rayon um, lights up very quickly and easily and i've melted through the linings of many a felt like a field blouse over the year over the years so you could say that i have actually yeah like destroyed a fair number of objects to the point where now i know what i'm doing but i was brazen younger and a lot dumber so i've owned these skills over the past few you know over 10 years but at this point the probably the biggest horror shows is destroying things that are, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But, you know, is the risk worth it? You know, is the, the increased realism, you know, worth maybe every now and again working on a project that, you know, doesn't, oh, doesn't work out. And the reason why I say this is all about like improving the look of cheaper reenactment objects is it's not going to hurt you nearly as bad as say, you know, doing a, uh, doing a full detailing, if you will, in regards to distressing, like a, a Yanka tunic or a Lost Battalions or a, uh, your Elzenows out there. There's a lot less to lose, essentially, financially, if you're willing to take an object that's not the best, like a military harbor tunic, right? And giving it that aging process, maybe swapping out the buttons. And you might have a very good-looking object at the end of it, but if you destroy it, it's not going to hurt your bank nearly as bad as like you take your $800 custom made Elzenau Feldbluse and, <laughs> you know, torch it with a blowtorch and burn a hole in the sleeve because, you know, it's just not going to look right. I also feel that these projects, similarly to how we've discussed, you know, just doing little things such as polishing your leather or sewing your button, sewing, reinforcing the buttons on your uniform, it can teach you new skills. And I prefer to practice on lower grade reproductions where if it's a success now i have a great usable object and if it's a failure well it's it can't be any worse than the way it looked when it showed up you know you recently shared some pictures on facebook of a helmet that you had uh, Mm -hmm. repainted um you know obviously you're constantly trying out new things expanding your skills are there areas where you still um feel like there's some some new skills that you'd like to learn i i could learn new skills every day and by that i mean i would like to get a lot better at sewing with a sewing machine so i'm pretty good at hand sewing um, especially insignia but i don't have the skills really to you know i've seen issues with sm wholesale zelt bombs that have that like um, interlocking stitch, which is Farby, and I, I would love to learn how to like just even just sew a straight line with an old school treadle machine that can withstand the actual heavy canvas. I would like to learn how to use um, a like a spray gun, like attached to an air compressor for painting helmets. I mean, I, I'm limited by the things I know how to do, so I'm limited to you know rattle cans, spray on texture, you know either putting aluminum oxide in a salt and pepper shaker and shaking that on a helmet. There's a lot of things I wish I knew how to do better. But um, if people like the way my, I don't say products look, but my projects end up looking, then I feel I've, I've been successful. As long as it's the grand consensus is like whatever I'm using or I've done looks authentic, then hey, I'm in a good spot. Lassa, are you still like working on 
skills? Are you kind of happy with your skill set with regard to uh, reenactment kit? Yeah, I think I got a good uh, coverage on uh, sewing both by hand and machine and also leather and also painting. I don't feel the need to actually learn any new tricks yet. But but you've painted a vehicle, though, right? Yeah, we've never done that, right? <laughs> well, I mean, we did. I mean, remember actually long ago, Chris, when we built um, wooden bunks? So, I mean, there's a lot of skills that have I, I've actually started implementing in my day-to-day life that I learned predominantly as a young adult doing this hobby, you know, like basic carpentry, things like that. And I think, you know, the skills I've, I've learned in fixing some crappier reproductions out there have not only benefited me in improving my impression as it stands, but, uh, you know, there's not many people in our age cohort. And I say this for pretty much anyone on this, that's listening to this uh, podcast that actively knows how to hand sew or actively knows how to operate like a sewing machine. Like it's just not really a taught skill anymore. I've probably talked about this before, but I really like the craft aspect of reenactment, you know, making stuff, learning these skills, um, being able to repair things the way they would have been repaired back then. I think a lot of these were skills that were commonplace for men and women in the 1940s that now are, you know, kind of forgotten in our more disposable throwaway society. That's kind of one of the things that really appeals to me about reenacting is kind of learning about how people used to live and learning skills that people used to have and uh, being able to apply them not only to my kit, but just kind of to my everyday life, you know, to things that I use every day. I agree. So I guess that's, uh, we're coming up on the end of our time. Lassa, was there anything else that uh, you wanted to go over before we sign off here? Ooh, well, I think we, um, well, this is more of a European problem, I believe, but uh, now as gun laws are always getting stricter and stricter, I think um, not necessarily cheap uh, reproductions and, well, kind of, um, it's the problem uh, getting all of original K98s can become more and more difficult. Uh, so uh, I think, especially in the Euro scene, uh, most people will be starting to relying on uh, reproduction K98s. And none of them look good off the bat. Funny story. So, Chris, I believe <laughs> yeah. you have an old uh, Airsoft K98 that I did some work on back in the day. And um, yes, I do. that's yet another example of sometimes when you're dealt like a hand of you're being stuck with this specific object, what can you do to improve it? So for these like Airsoft or I think the Denix K98 is actually superior in regards to how it actually looks. Like what can you do to improve it? Because it's going to be get cast zinc. It's not going to look right if you try and blue it. A lot of it has to do with like removing bad finishes off of the wood, scuffing up the metal with a Brillo pad and some steel wool. And just trying to make it look a little bit more realistic. Mm, I'm sure yeah. this is like a basic thing that almost everyone would know. But ultimately, I'm actually, I, I live in the States, obviously. I, I own a live firing K98. I don't need a Denix K98. But I'm actually thinking of purchasing one myself just because, you know, when I go to um, events where I know I'm not going to be shooting, like if we, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of us doing the bunker events when we're just doing like a, an immersion only non-tactical event and my rifle is just a prop 
it might actually make more sense for me to just start bringing in either an airsoft or denix replica because it's easier to cross you know state lines with it so i don't have to worry about any changes to firearm laws and you know what if i smash it into a million pieces which i have seen happen to a real k98 stock i'm not going to cry because i'm not destroying an original object i mean the time that happened a guy literally just was bayonetting a if i can recall it was a hay bale and his rifle cracked at the rick at the wrist. So, hmm. yeah, then he had to find a replacement original stock, and that wasn't a good time because now stocks are costing almost as much as rifles used to back in the day. Paul did a really good job on my um, airsoft K ninety eight. It's made by D boys and had a real wood stock, um, but when it came out of the box, it looked like a toy. Um, Paul, I know you, you really put a lot of work into making that thing look more realistic. I think that you you might even have put some, it was like a combination of black and silver paint, some kind of weird process on the cast zinc to try to make it look more like uh, blued and mm-hmm. worn steel. I, I dry brushed it using um, silver paint and some black paint, and then I coated the entire thing with uh, a glossy, like Semi, I think it was a, I think it was a semi-gloss clear coat that it would retain that coloration because I knew you weren't going to be banging it around like a, you know obviously a real rifle, but it just needed to have the look and appearance from a couple of feet. Like obviously, if you hold the thing in your hands, you can tell it's not a real K98, but from it looked really yeah. close. You know, it looked really good. Um, yeah. Part of the problem with that rifle is, you know, from the perspective of now, years later, having marched around with this thing for years, the stock is made out of like a soft wood and it very easily scratches and and gets dings and those scratches and dings, the wood is like really bright bright white colored underneath, you know, so when when the applied finish wears off, you get this kind of like jarring... Um, light wood color, and then the other the other thing with this particular airsoft K ninety eight is that I think that the the bolt was like I don't know if it's made out of zinc or whatever it is, but then it was plated with copper, and then it was plated with with nickel or some other kind of plating, and now the the copper is really showing through. So, so at some point, uh, maybe I'll give that thing back to you, and you can see if you can make it look yeah, any better. Yeah, I think. In this vein, and Lasa, I know this actually might pertain more to you guys over in Europe, is this might be something as part of, like, I don't want to say weapons maintenance, but over time, like, they might need to be defarbed again and again and again because you're not going to find, a perm- like, a permanent solution yeah. that would ever work. I mean, you guys have access to deactivated weapons, which, personally, I find abhorrent. Like, I, I would never destroy something like that, but laws are laws, and you can't get around them. So... In my opinion, if things do become more scarce, maybe this is just something you need to incorporate into like your unit's you know annual tasks. It's like, all right, everybody, we're doing a weapons defarb day. Everyone, bring your airsoft K98, and we can see what we can do. Yeah, no, in Norway, we're lucky enough to have um, somewhat slack on loss, and most of our guys do have uh, original rifles. But uh, it's especially when we're moving to other countries to uh, reenact with them that it mm-hmm. can be a problem. And I do also believe that in regards to like the uh, soft wooden stock that the newer reproductions of K98s are better because the D-Boys was always known to be mm-hmm. like very cheap. But at the time, that was the only option, I think. That, this is like five, six years ago yeah. almost now. 
Yeah, was it that either the cheap T-Boys or the very, very expensive Tanaka one? But uh, now you have more options, uh, thankfully. Yeah, I think maybe that'll be my next big buy. And uh, I guess I'll chronicle it on Facebook, my little project of improving it. We'd take out some of our pictures from our events and we'd be sharing them with the veterans and you know, they would say, uh, oh, I, I don't remember who this was. Or I, and then we would say, oh, no, no, like th- that's us. A public show battle is a scripted battle where the um, Americans always win. It is the worst thing imaginable when you're in it. Yeah, I've always loved helmets from World War II and that has snowballed into, I want to get a helmet from every country from World War II. I'm insane. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, Paul, thank you very much for uh, coming on. It was great having you on as a guest, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again some other time to talk about a different topic of your expertise. Really appreciate it, Chris, and thanks, Lassa. Thanks, both of you, for inviting me on today. That was great. Thank you for coming. I'd like to take a moment to give a special welcome to our new Patreon supporters this month, Bob and Martin. Thank you very much, you guys, for your contributions. Uh, It really means a lot, and it uh, helps keep the lights on over here at this podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to all our patrons. All right, Lassa, it's been uh, great talking to you. I hope we can chat again soon. Um, Thanks to everybody for listening, and to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.